Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And today we're excited to be speaking with Helen Block with the law offices of Helen Block PC. Helen founded her firm on her own in 2007, and it is a certified female-owned business. Helen has over 20 years of legal experience. After graduating from law school, Helen worked as a prosecutor and defense attorney for the city of Chicago. She then worked as an associate attorney with Bellows and Bellows PC, and then went on to found this firm. Helen works with a very diverse range of clients, ranging from Fortune 500 executives to employees, and including large corporations to small family-owned businesses. She has practiced in state and federal courts and in arbitration forums, including, but not limited to, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Helen often works with senior executives to negotiate their employment and severance agreements and negotiating non-competes and non-solicit agreements. She routinely lectures on legal and business topics, including gender roles in the law. In addition to her legal work, Helen is heavily involved in her community. She is the immediate past president of the Decalogue Society of Lawyers, which awarded her the presidential citation in 2015 and the Intra-Society Award of Merit in 2001. And I can speak from personal experience as a co-board member that Helen was an outstanding president and highly motivated and active member. She is a member of several other associations, including the Lawyers Division of the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Chicago, a a life member of Hadassah, and a member of APAC. Helen received her JD from Chicago Kent College of Law, furthering the Chicago Kent Mafia that we've been perpetuating on this podcast and in our bar, and received her BA from Yeshiva University, where she unsurprisingly graduated magna cum laude. Helen, welcome. Thank you very much. What a nice introduction. I hope I can live up to your expectations. You're all right. Gail still has the record for the longest introduction and the one that Amit deliberately wrote in the most convoluted and tongue-tying way possible. So that <laughs> I, it was actually somewhat painless. I got to say, it's my favorite part of doing this, this podcast is putting together the bios. I also think most of our guests might just be Kent Law alums, like 95%. They have an uh, excellent legal writing program that certainly distinguishes Kent from a lot of the other law schools. That and, that and the employment clinic. It furthers my theory that Rich Gonzalez will, by the end of his career, have taught 90% of the people in our bar. Uh, if You know, you I didn't take one employment class when I was a law student at Kent, I actually got a certificate in, which means I took extra classes in international and comparative law, of which I don't do anything in that area or hardly I'm the, anything. I'm the same way. I took <laughs> a zero law, a zero employment law classes. I got a certificate in business law. I've learned everything <laughs> since, you know, becoming a lawyer. Yeah, I'm in the same way. I think it just goes to show it's it, law school's most often about how well it prepares you generally to learn and be a lawyer than, you know, learning the law, so to speak, itself. One other plug we'll, we'll make for Kent and then kind of move on is they have a great incubator program. They do a great mm-hmm. job, I think, of setting up attorneys to have their own firms and the business side of things, which is maybe why we have so many folks from Kent on. Could be, yeah. That was after my time. So I'm dating myself a little bit, but I would think that is a great program. One of my regrets that I did not do in law school was clinic. I wish I had done clinic. So I really started out very, very fresh in my practice without much practical experience when I first became attorney at the city of Chicago. 
let's jump right in, Helen. We're, we're really excited to have you today. We want to talk, we're going to touch on employment law, but we want to go at it from a different angle because you're unique in that you're our first guest to actually have an active workers' compensation practice, which is important because it intersects with employment law, but it's not employment law per se in the way that we talk about it. And we want to talk about that and you know how, how it touches on COVID-19 and, and how all these things work together. So just for our listeners who we're hoping are not lawyers, all of them who may not be familiar, what what is workers' compensation? What does that mean basically? What's a workers' comp claim? What does that sure. what does that entail? And a lot of people really have a misconception of it because they're so used to watching these infomercials on TV about, you know, if you're hurt, we'll get you compensation for your injuries and pain and suffering. And so sometimes when potential clients call me, I have to reduce their expectations because they're not going to be getting millions and millions of dollars from a worker's compensation case unless, you know, God forbid, they have some some horrific, horrific injury in which they're completely incapacitated and amputated. And it's not that they're going to get money in their pocket, but they're going to get a lot of medical expenses paid, such as maybe their house complete, being completely retrofitted to be able to accommodate them. But in terms of dollars in their pocket, these are not huge cases because workers' compensation in a simplistic way boils down to three benefits under the Workers' Compensation Act that you're entitled to. The first benefit is you're entitled to 66 and two thirds of your salary tax free while you cannot work as a result of a work-related injury. And we call those temporary total disability benefits. So that's one benefit that you get under the law. Temporary total disability while you can't work assuming you can show that, you, that you've got a work-related injury. The second benefit is medical expenses, which means that the employer is responsible for paying reasonable and necessary medical care as a result of a work-related injury. And the third benefit is once you're as good as you're gonna be, which we call in workers' comp lingo, MMI, maximum medical improvement, you're entitled to get some money for the nature and extent of your injuries. That's it. There are just three things under the Workers' Compensation Act that you're going to get. So a lot of people, especially, you know, if they've missed work or perhaps they've suffered the fact that they haven't gotten a bonus or they haven't, let's say, gotten a promotion, they want some money from certain lost opportunities. You just don't get that under workers' comp law like you do, let's say, in a personal injury action if, if you got into a car accident. It's really limited to those three benefits. Now, those, with that said, those three benefits are, are very, very complicated. And there's a lot of fighting over whether someone's actually entitled to those benefits. And there are a lot of hoops you have to go through. But at the end of the day, if you can show that you, have a, that you actually have a, a workers' compensation claim, it's only those three benefits to which you're entitled under workers' comp law. And it's interesting because I ended my, or you guys ended my bio with my work at the city of Chicago. And that's where I got a lot of experience because my background is really defense. Half my time as an attorney at the city of Chicago, I defended the city and workers' compensation cases. So when I started my own practice, most of my cases are on the other side now helping people get their benefits. But that gave me a really unique perspective in terms of how to make, let's say, a realistic settlement demand. Because I know how the other side is going to analyze the case. And also what some of the tactics are, which is delay, 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 delay. So it makes it me, it's, it's a little easier for me sometimes to deal with these cases and to maintain client expectations because I've been able to look at it from, from both sides of the situation. That's really interesting. And I, I think even from a, an employment law general standpoint, I think working on both sides gives you a better perspective on 
how to work on these cases, negotiate them, set client expectations. So you mentioned one strategy is delay. How is, what is the process like? Is I know sometimes you can have cases that at least traditional employment law that linger two to seven years. How does workers' comp work? So the system, it's a nightmare. It really is. I'm hoping maybe one day it gets overhauled. I mean, a lot of the changes come about because of business. Like for instance, there was a major overhaul of the Workers' Compensation Act in 2011 because like a lot of business chambers and whatnot wanted to reduce premiums and they lobbied the legislature. I know for instance, you know, when, when Governor Rauner was the governor that really impacted the system because these workers' compensation arbitrators and commissioners who hear these cases, I mean, you don't go to court in these cases. You file, let's say, to start a workers' compensation case, what's called an application for adjustment of claim. And, you know, you file it in front of the Workers' Compensation Commission and only they have jurisdiction to hear the case from the initial stages, the ground up, essentially. So it's really driven by politics. So if you have a more, let's say, conservative governor, these arbitrators and commissioners want to keep their jobs. And so you're going to have much more conservative awards that are being entered. And so they want to, in a way, please business, you know, and the businesses. And so that's why I, I was uh, mentioning a moment ago about this big overhaul in 2011, because businesses really lobbied hard, their premiums were going up. And the irony is, is that when the compact was changed, I don't think premiums went down. The study showed that the, the premiums didn't really go down because what happened is all these cottage industries were established and it just made getting benefits even harder. What I mean by cottage industries is one of the amendments in 2011 is you could, for instance, uh, they gave more leeway for utilization review, which means like an outside doctor can look at whether or not really you need, let's say, an MRI, you need five more sessions of physical therapy. So it's not that the premiums went down because the adjusters essentially were paying these other entities like additional doctors for independent medical evaluations to get, let's say, uh, a rating under the American Medical Association guidelines, an AMA impairment rating. That was another amendment for 2011 is that the arbitrators can consider whether or not, or they can consider um, an impairment rating from a doctor when, when providing an award. So that established a whole nother cottage industry where now these insurance adjusters are paying a fortune to these you know, orthopedic doctors who charge a fortune to get an AMA impairment rating. So the premiums didn't go down. It took longer for injured workers to get benefits. And that just was another example of another delay in the process. And again, premiums didn't go down, just more cottage industries were established to make you know money in this in this system. So it's always a very frustrating system and a so frustrating to, process. Just to back up, yeah. when you get hurt on the job, you can't sue your employer like in a, so you were talking about these TV commercials, right? You know, right. and if you're home in the middle of the day or late at night, you'll see lots of, you know, Glenn Lerner, or, you know, with mesothelioma or anything like that, right? <laughs> We've all seen the, pers the, the crummy personal injury TV ads that my wife has sworn never to allow me to, to be in for good reason, because they're awful. You know, if you get hit by a car, you, a doctor cuts the wrong leg off or something like that, you trip and fall, something else really bad is done to you, you know, walking down the street, right? You know, you can sue somebody for personal injury. But as I understand comp and, and based on what you're saying, these are the only remedies you get if you get hurt on the job, right? Right. And that's an interesting point. So if you get hurt at work, and in order to be able to establish that you're eligible for workers' compensation benefits, you have to proof that you had an accident that arose out of and in the course of your employment. That's the magic language. Arising out of in the course of your employment. There's a lot of fighting over that before you, sometimes you can even get to those three benefits. So you got to pass that in order to get these benefits. And so 
the, the place that hears those cases is the Workers' Compensation Commission. And when someone gets hurt at work, the exclusive remedy for them is to file a claim before the Illinois Workers' Compensation Commission. You cannot go to court. And that's an interesting intersection between, let's say, employment law and workers' compensation. Because sometimes when someone files a lawsuit, you'll see as a defense, hey, you can't bring this in court because this is subject to the exclusive remedy provision of the Workers' Compensation Act. You got to go file this before workers' compensation, before the Workers' Compensation Commission. It's not properly here. In fact, what's interesting is I once had a, a disability discrimination case that I filed um, in federal court um, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, but I also alleged certain what we call torts, meaning emotional distress, invasion of privacy, and some other things. And one, and my opponent filed a motion to dismiss, and they claimed that what I'm alleging, the emotional distress and some of these other claims is under the workers' compensation exclusive remedy provision, and it's not properly in front of the court, and they moved to dismiss it. In that case, I was successful, and I was able to keep all the claims in court, but the judge kind of had to do a little bit of a backbend and basically say, this is not relying on workers' compensation. It's not as a result of, of a workplace injury. This is just a general emotional distress because of this like egregious conduct. If, if we're right in what we're saying, it's like egregious conduct that happened you know, by the employer, one of the employer's agents. So it's not really a work, a work injury and therefore it can properly be in front of the court. But the court did have to go through this analysis of the Workers' Compensation Act to show that it really wasn't part of, of the exclusive remedy provision of the Workers' Compensation Act, that that could go forward. Now, there are others that haven't been as um, successful in, in terms of certain allegations. I mean, there was a really strange case, and I'm still shocked that the federal court sent it to Comp World because I think Compland, you know, the Workers' Compensation Commissioners would... I think personally, they would say it belongs in court, but we'll see what happens. There was a case that involved in like to work for the airlines, like, you know, one person was from one country, one person from was from another country. And essentially there was like a bar fight between these guys. I don't know if this case sounds familiar to any of you there, you know, either of you guys, but it was like some kind of a bar fight or something. And then one of the other guys knocks on the other, you know, flight attendant's door later on and beats him up. And so they filed a lawsuit in federal court. I thought it was properly in federal court because you have your diversity of jurisdiction and citizenship and whatnot. And the court said, no, this, was a, this should be a work injury and, and it should be filed in front of workers' compensation. And honestly, what I know about in terms of the analysis of workers' compensation law, I honestly think that the Workers' Compensation Commission, if the, and I'm always curious what happened in this case. I have no clue what happened in this case after it was dismissed from federal court, but I think you know, the workers' compensation commissioners are going to look at this analysis and say, this did not happen in the scope of employment. You know, this was like, you know, like, like a, a fight between individuals that really had nothing to do. It didn't arise out of into the course of employment. We can go back to that language, that this was really like, you know, a, a fight, like a horseplay or whatever. And it takes it outside the scope of the, the workers' compensation act. But there's an example of where the court decided, hey, it doesn't belong in court. It should be in front of the workers' compensation commission. In Illinois, no less, even though None of these alleged injured workers are from Illinois. So how far does the act go? Let's say you're at a holiday party through work, maybe have one too many beers, you slip and fall, you get hurt. Is that under the Workers' Compensation Act or is that something else? It could be. You'd have to go through an analysis. I mean, you'd have to go through analysis. So for instance, did, did you know, for instance, your employer require, was this a, a workplace requirement that you attend this party? You mentioned that you were drinking. 
those are one of the other, I talked about the 2011 amendments earlier. That was another amendment that went in, that went in to the compact. If someone is inebriated and you can establish that they're inebriated, that might take them out of, of a compensable injury. So then you go through the analysis. Was it really because they were drunk or really because they would have been injured irrespective of of whether or not they were inebriated? So it's possible, but that certainly would not be a slam dunk case. Also, you have to go through the fact of whether they were exposed to a risk that was greater than members of the general public. Because if let's say you're at a restaurant in your example, even though it's a holiday party, but this restaurant is open to members of the general public and anyone really could have fallen it may not have been an increased risk. The employment did not cause an increased risk and therefore it would not be compensable or might not be compensable under the Workers' Compensation Act. So there are a lot of hoops to go through in the hypothetical that you gave me. No easy answer to that one. What I'm assuming too, someone may try to sue the restaurant and there's other factors that you have to kind of deal with as well. That's where third party case comes in. That's actually a great example of what we call a third party. So while workers' compensation is the exclusive remedy against an employer, you do have situations where there are personal injury ancillary uh, lawsuits going on at the same time. And then you get into the situation of reimbursement and whatnot, because if you think about it, if a third party actually called the accident, caused the accident, why is the employer responsible for paying? So the employer might be responsible for paying because it did arise out of in the course of employment, but they might be entitled to reimbursement if you file a lawsuit against the third party who is ultimately responsible. And you see this a lot of times with malfunctioning equipment in the place of employment. So let's say the employer, you're working in a factory and it's a factory setting and the employer, let's say, gets their hand entangled in a machine, like a machine closes on someone's hand and it should not have the machine malfunction. So you would have a workers' comp- a compensable workers' compensation claim against the employer, but then a third-party lawsuit will be filed against the manufacturer because of that situation. So we talked about you have to show that it was a work-related injury, and I think that's a nice segue into part of what we wanted to cover today, which is the intersection of workers' comp, employment law, and COVID-19. We've done a lot of COVID stuff early on in this show because there's a worldwide pandemic, you know, lots of people have died, a lot of people have lost jobs, and you know, our area of law yours in comp and employment line and for all of us has frankly been out of control crazy for the last year because you know laws and regulations and health guidelines have changed sometimes by the day so can you talk a little bit about what what covid-19 what what the impact of covid-19 has been on workers comp how covid-19 sort of impacts it and you know sure. what happens if you catch covid at work like how does that play into this sure so personally i have filed on behalf of three different clients of mine, each in diverse areas. And what I mean by diverse areas, one was like a a police officer in a suburban police district. One was a nurse in a a drug rehab facility. And another was a nurse in a, in a, a typical hospital setting. And so I filed three workers' compensation Uh, claims that are currently pending before the Workers' Compensation Commission. So I do have some experience, personal experience in this area, in addition to be able to talk about it from a general perspective. So when the COVID happened, you know, government really seemed to jump in and get on top of it and really want to help these first responders 
and these frontline workers. In fact, the Workers' Compensation Commission jumped a little bit ahead of itself and basically came out with this overbroad rule on its own that essentially anyone who's basically continuing to work, like going to work, you know, they'll be able to establish, there'll be a presumption that they, they got injured, that their COVID is work-related and it rose out of the course of their employment. And then there was a big backlash that the commission didn't have that authority. So fine, Governor Prisker came out and basically said he, they narrowed the definition, which I think appropriately so, just because you merely happen to go to work doesn't necessarily mean you got COVID. I mean, you could have gotten it at the grocery store, not because you're going to work necessarily. So I, I think that was kind of appropriate. But in any event, Governor Prisker came out and he issued uh, an order basically saying that frontline workers and first responders, if they get COVID, there's a presumption that it arose out of it in the course of their employment, which sounds great on paper. But in practice, it has done nothing for my clients, which is really, really frustrating. I've had to go through the exact same analysis as in any other case. Benefits, in a way, have not been paid, which is very frustrating because if you remember, one of the things that the feds did is they passed this law with the acronym that we call the FFCRA, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. So employers were not treating these necessarily as work-related, like work injuries and calling their workers' compensation carriers and saying, hey, someone got COVID at work, so, you know, get them on, pay them, you know, this temporary total disability. Instead, what employers were doing is not going through the analysis, but basically saying, okay, we have to follow the, the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, this FFCRA, and give them, you know, 10 days of sick leave under the FFCRA, and basically, that's it. We're done. You know, uh, we'll give you some time off, come back to work. And so for the most part, that's what happened with my three cases. But I have one case in particular where it was far more serious than that. I have a client right now and I'm, I'm, this is literally pending right now. And I'm, I'm so angry and I'm so frustrated that the process is letting down my client, that the governor's order means nothing. My client contracted COVID the end of October, beginning November, positive COVID test, off of work. Unfortunately for my client, my client had pre-existing conditions. So the usual, you know, 10 days of FFCRA benefits come back to work, did not apply. And by the time the client retained me in December, was still off of work because of COVID, was going through a horrible situation. The employer did nothing to help the client. I filed immediately an application for adjustment of claim with the Workers' Compensation Commission so that at least would have triggered the uh, insurance company being on notice because really we talk about employer being responsible and technically under the law they are, but really it's the insurance company that are driving these cases. It's mandatory in Illinois that employers have workers' compensation insurance. So so usually more times out of more times than not, it's the insurance companies that are driving these cases, not necessarily even the employers even though they're technically on the hook and the insurance company gets involved and they want to have, you know, they want to take a statement from my client, which sometimes I'm ambivalent on statements, but this time I, I was happy to do the statement. I thought it was so obvious. My, my client got it at work. There were 30 other people that got COVID at the same time as my client. I mean, it was so obvious. There was basically a patient that came in there that had COVID that spread it to everyone. The place didn't have the proper PPE didn't have the proper sanitation, so obvious, okay? 30 other people, including the director, got COVID and they were, in, quote unquote, investigating this claim. And I thought it was such a slam dunk that I didn't mind that my client provided a statement. I mean, I was on the call, gave a statement because I thought, let me do anything I can to get this going. That was in January, January 12th, actually, to be precise, was when my client gave the statement. 
They were investigating. Well, we need the doctor's records. Sent whatever doctor's records I had. Sent them the positive COVID test. Investigating, investigating, investigating. Meanwhile, my client, no money, nothing, loses her home. You know, she, you know, you know, in her 50s, had to move in with her parents. Can you imagine in, in your 50s? Because there was no money. And uh, then the employer starts to send a letter, which here again, it shows you the interplay between comp and, and, and work. That, gee, your doctor, you know, put you on FMLA because the doctor did say that, that my client should be on FMLA. I mean, my client's toes were turning purple. He couldn't return to work. So FMLA was granted till February 2nd, but my client still couldn't return to work. And in light of the fact that he had no money, my client's pre-existing anxiety, depression, and other pre-existing conditions really ramped up. Ramped up to the point where my client was hospitalized inpatient. Okay, for because he had a mental breakdown as a result of this. I'm still not getting any benefits. I'm filing emergency motions with the Workers' Compensation Commission because we're in COVID world. They're not granting any hearings. We're just having these like pretrial hearings online if you're lucky enough to get one that are maybe 15 minutes. So finally in March. Oh, and then the employer terminates my client because the FMLA expired. So my client was off for three months. The FMLA expired while my client was inpatient and couldn't respond to the employer's email because it didn't even get the email because they weren't allowed email. And the employer sends a notice saying, oh, you, you're a no call, no show. So now we're terminating your employment. So now my client has no insurance benefits, even regular insurance benefits, gets discharged from the hospital. The hospital says you need to engage in intensive outpatient therapy. Now my client has no insurance, no nothing. So she can't get the benefits. I finally get a, a pretrial conference with the arbitrator and the other side recognizing, they, they, they send it out to a lawyer, recognizing that she probably got COVID from work, said, okay, you know what? On a compromise, we're gonna send you four weeks of TTD, temporary total disability. Now, mind you, my client's been off of work since October 30, probably October 31st. Got, let's say 10 days of FFCRA benefits, that was it, nothing else. Okay, we're gonna send you four weeks, okay. Because they knew they wanted to appease the arbitrator. So we get onto this call and they're like, your honor, you know, we're sending four weeks, but you know, the person has pre-existing conditions. So we want to send them for an independent medical evaluation. So of course the arbitrator says, and I said, look, there's a condition of good health beforehand, didn't miss a day of work. They have a right to investigate. So I said, but you know, Governor Prisker entered this order. There is a presumption. They now agree that they can't fight this because there were 30 other people had COVID. I mean, at least pay through the FMLA period because the doctor says that COVID can't return to work. Well, it's unclear. They have a right to investigate. And the, the arbitrator wouldn't even recommend, since they paid the four weeks, he would have recommended the four weeks. Oh, but since they agreed to pay the four weeks, you know, that was the compromise. And then I motioned it up again for the next month. And then again, we're in front of the arbitrator the next month. Did they pay the four weeks? Eventually we just got, and literally it took a month to issue those four weeks. So I ready, I got the four weeks the day before the next pretrial in April. So mind you, April, I finally get four weeks of payment. My client's been off of work since, you know, October, October 31st is when the exposure happened. Okay. Finally gets the four weeks. The independent medical evaluation was April 8th. So the arbitrator is like, okay, well, let's just see what the independent medical evaluator has to say. Now I finally get the report. The independent medical evaluator basically says it's actually pretty favorable to my client. And I said, okay, fine. So what do they do? May 6th, I get an email from my opponent saying, okay, we recognize we have to pay some benefits. Let's, let's enter into a global settlement. 
I'm like, the person's still treating. And then they don't return my phone calls. And now we're trying, you know, some kind of global settlement, who knows what, I've motioned it up again for penalties for the whole nine yards. And that's what I meant when I said in the beginning, delay, 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 delay is the defense. And here's a case which is clearly compensable, clearly got COVID at work. The laws are designed to help people like my client and the system is failing this client of mine. Very frustrating. That's terrific. And I should, I mean, I should have asked this earlier. Can your client get unemployment benefits during all of this? Oh, good question. The employer denied my client's application for unemployment benefits because my client was too sick to work. So she couldn't get unemployment benefits either. And with regard to unemployment benefits, if you're curious, how does that work with workers' compensation? Here's the scoop on that. If someone is, you can't double dip. So if someone is getting temporary total disability benefits, you can't also get unemployment benefits at the same time, you'd be double dipping. But let's say for instance, let's say you're a secretary, okay? And you had a medial meniscus tear. Let's say you tripped over a file cabinet, you fell and you broke your leg or you got a medial meniscus tear and you've had surgery, you go back to work, but you still need some physical therapy, you need some medical care, but you're able to work because you have light duty restrictions and it's a secretarial job, okay? Well, let's say then the employer has layoffs and you know, you're, you're laid off from work. So yes, in that situation, you could collect unemployment because you are able to work and you're no longer receiving temporary total disability benefits and you're still receiving workers' comp benefits because the employer is still obligated to pay for your medical benefits. So there's an, uh, an example of, let's say, where one could be receiving um, unemployment compensation benefits at the same time as receiving some workers' compensation benefits. That story would be... F- funny if it weren't so depressing and awful for your client. I mean, it's like planes, trains, and automobiles, the COVID workers' compensation version. It's Mm -hmm. terrible. I mean, it's like a bad joke. It's like, that's a parade of horribles and an employer who's basically, and an insurer who's going out of their way, right, to just drag their feet and ensure they can squeeze as little out of this case as possible. Oh, and I can make Um, it even worse for you. One other point. Yes. So, you know, as we know, President Biden recently passed a law that allows um, um, people to to get COBRA benefits to continue with their insurance. Well, in light of the fact that she was a no-call, no-show at work because she was admitted inpatient, she's not eligible to get the COBRA benefits, so she has no insurance right now. So that's why she couldn't do the inpatient care afterward, because I recommended to my client, I said, look, here, you're entitled to COBRA. You should be getting the COBRA because you lost your job. And it turns out they denied the the COBRA because they claimed she was a no-call, no-show at work. So she voluntarily left the position. And I don't know enough about the this new act by Biden to opine one way or the other whether the employer is right or wrong, but that's what it, that's just what happened. When on top of that, it makes everything else worse, some of which, most of which probably she can never recover, like losing your house. I don't know you know, that that's going to be hard to quantify. And I'm not I'm assuming that's not something she can get back from this whole process. Anxiety, everything else that she's going through also is going to be so much worse after all of this. Right. Now, the anxiety technically is part of the work injury, because under workers compensation, if mental is as a result of a work related accident, it can be compensable. So when we talk about that third benefit, once you're at what's called maximum medical improvement, the nature and extent of your injuries, the emotional will play a role. It will be a factor in determining what is the nature and extent of her injuries. But the fact that she, let's say, lost her place to live, no. Yeah, I'm I'm at a loss. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. That's just so horrible. So real quick, Helen, before we we close, can you touch very briefly on 
you know, guidance that's come out recently about mask wearing and, and how that might play in from a workers' compensation perspective. You know, the safety precautions in the workplace, whatever is going on there. And if employer doesn't require masks in the workplace, are the only liability risks just people getting comp or there are other things that come to mind? Well, I think there are a number of things that, that actually come to mind. So putting on my employment hat as opposed to necessarily my workers' comp hat, and I can tie it back to my workers' comp hat in a moment. If an employer in the place of employment is not following, let's say, CDC guidelines or state of Illinois guidelines or city of Chicago guidelines, and someone actually contracts COVID from that from that establishment, then a few things. So first of all, the place of employment could be subject to lawsuits. So for instance, if it's an employee and they can establish that they got COVID at work, then you go through that whole analysis, did it rise out of in the course of, of their employment? But let's say for instance, they bring it home to their spouse, you know, and their spouse gets COVID. If the place of employment, let's say did not follow those, whatever the guidelines are that it was established, then perhaps the spouse might have a negligence claim against the employer. Now, I know there are states around the country that are trying to preclude these kind of actions. I don't think Illinois yet is, is one of them. So let's say at the place of employment, you know, if they're not following guidelines and let's say you have a patron and they, you know, they, they contract COVID because the, 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 the place that they're patronizing doesn't uh, have proper sanitation, is not requiring masks, then that establishment opens them, uh, themselves up to potential liability claims, negligence or whatnot, or maybe even OSHA, you know, maybe OSHA would investigate if let's say it's, a, you know, from an employment perspective, even if it's not necessarily workers comp, if there aren't various guidelines in place, then, you know, potentially someone could complain to OSHA, perhaps OSHA might investigate a place of employment if they're not following guidelines. But if they are following guidelines, then I don't really think that the employer could be held liable from a liability perspective. Now, uh, now again, the workers' compensation analysis is really the same as with any other injury, as with if someone fell at work. You know, if the employee can establish that they contracted COVID at work, then they will be entitled to benefits under the Workers' Compensation Act. But you know, if they're not a first responder, if they're not a nurse, it might be harder. You know, now certainly, if let's say you are, you know, let's say you're, you know, it's a construction, you know, construction site, for instance, and you know, you know, ten employees got COVID at the same time, then it probably would be easier to say, hey, I got, if I was one of those ten employees, I got it from one of my coworkers, I got it at work, and then the employer would be responsible for paying these workers' compensation benefits because it, the employee would be able to establish that their injury or their occupational disease. You know, I actually, I filed this claim, this one claim under the Occupational Diseases Act on behalf of my client, which is very similar to the Workers' Compensation Act, it's the same benefits and everything. Then they, you know, they'll be able to establish that they contracted it at work and they will be entitled to these various benefits under the Workers' Compensation Act. Helen, thank you for sharing all of this information with us and putting some really complicated systems into real human terms, kind of that I think that that client story you told us really I think it puts a human face on all of this and it kind of gives a working example of how these things play out. Do you have anything you'd like to plug today? Well, something really interesting and unique did happen at work. And what I mean by that is, is that I, as you mentioned in, in the intro, I'm a, a past president of Decalogue Society, Lawyers, the Jewish Bar Association. And there was a case that was very near and dear to our hearts. It's an employment case. It involved a Seventh-day Adventist uh, who was offered a management position at Walmart. And once he disclosed that he was Sabbath observant, Walmart revoked their offer to him. He was represented by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And unfortunately for this, this gentleman, 
the court ruled against him, except there was a dissent. One of the judges basically said it went up to the Seventh Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. And uh, Judge Rovner basically said, hey, you know, how could you not at least try to ask his, you know, fellow managers if they'd be willing to swap shifts with him? This kind of sounds to me like what happened with women, you know, women who were childbearing, they were denied jobs because employers did not want to accommodate childbearing, childbearing needs. And, and hey, it should be, you know, similar for this guy. And so at Decalogue, you know, I, I picked this up and I ran with it because organizations, if it meets their missions and goals, are, are able to file what's called amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs, to help the, the court in their analysis as to whether the case should stay the same or it should be reversed. And so I worked very hard and I filed what's called a amicus brief, a friend of the court brief on behalf of the Decalogue Society of Lawyers, along with some others, including you, Max. You were one of the people who edited our brief. Thank you very much that we filed with the court. And the good news is the court, the Seventh Circuit, did accept our brief. And what happens now is hopefully they will have a rehearing, like the entire appellate court will rehear this case. And uh, hopefully it will get reversed because I think in the interest of having a diverse an inclusive society. We should try to accommodate people who uh, have religious needs, no different than we try to accommodate people who get who are who are have disabilities, uh, women, and 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 various others and various other protected classes. So I'm really hopeful, in light of the fact that the court accepted our brief, that perhaps they will rehear this case and reverse their initial decision. I'll just plug that Helen did most of the very heavy lifting on this brief on a short schedule with short notice, with without. I mean. Folks like myself edited and, and some others were able to help in other logistical ways and in, in a not so insignificant way that Helen did a lot on this. So I will I will vouch for her efforts on this. Amit, spring it on. I'm her. happy to share it. Happy to share it if anyone's interested in reading it. <laughs> well, and this is a perfect segue. So at the end of our episodes, we like to ask our guests to provide us a shout out of the week. So it can be a person that they want to highlight. It can be a book. It can be a TV show. It can be a child, anyone. It can so be a pet. Is- Jason, Jason plugged a pet. He did. Yep. So who is your shout out of the week? Oh my God, you're catching me by surprise on this one. That's that was deliberate. <laughs> That's deliberate. But that also means you have not listened to our episodes that are out so far. <laughs> you know, Busted I Helen. don't say that. I, I listened, actually, I listened to Jason Hahn. I listened to some of the others, but I, I didn't wait all the way until the end. So you're oh, right. No. Shame on me. I got it, busy. This is how I, we'll know if our guests are actually that. listening. But that's all right. It's yeah. okay. We, we spring. It's an innocuous thing. The thing we're springing on you, I promise, is not meant to make you look bad. It's just yeah. a, a fun thing. Can be your kids. Can be your your own work on this. Can be Decalogue's work on that. Can be a nice movie you watched during the pandemic. Uh, it can be literally anything in the planet. Well, I have to say, maybe the shout out will be to my ten year old son, Ron Lev. We had a birthday party for him last Sunday that was out in the park. He invited. He wanted to invite. I mean, he was very honest about this, but he had. Selfish reasons, he decided to invite the entire second, sorry, the entire third and fourth grade class because the, the school he goes to, the, the grades are combined. So he wanted to invite everyone because that would increase his chances of getting more presents. Well, obviously, smart kid. And <laughs> these kids came out of nowhere. He wanted to play softball and half the kids were not interested in softball. And it was interesting running around and managing these kids who some wanted to play in the dirt, some found trees that they wanted to just walk for blocks and blocks. I had to go chase them. Thank God I biked to work because I had to like sprint chasing these kids. But you know, my kid got to do what he wanted to do in light of COVID and actually have, you know, a real fun birthday party, despite the fact that we are still in COVID mode and kids still have to wear masks. So that was great. And my other son, McGill, is going to be going to overnight camp for the first time in 
in ever. And that will be very interesting that we'll have, you know, an opportunity to have one kid alone at home and one kid at camp and they're able to, I'm happy they're able to engage in some normalcy over the summer. That's awesome. Carrying on the time-honored tradition of Jewish overnight summer camp uh, stories. Well, Helen, with that, thank you so much for coming on to enlighten us and uh, help our our listeners learn about some interesting and complex areas of employment law and, and related areas, and we're all better for it. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was fun. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinion. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.